Voyagen, season three. And I love Voy. Enjoyable. It's remarkable. Lindsay. Elizabeth's Wheel, third season of Voyager. The purpose of all this is to gain knowledge of the universe and the people in it. You two are turning into a Star Trek script. Yes, it is a little bit clucky, but hopefully it will pay off in the long run. Welcome to Voyager, or Voyager, a theological journey, as Elizabeth would prefer. <laughs> and uh, welcome to today's episode, season three, uh, the episode Unity. Yes, number 17, Unity. Uh, the storyline synopsis goes, still travelling through the necrid expanse, the Chakotay and Ensign Kaplan uh, exploring their shuttle, in their shuttle, answer a distress call from uh, a multiracial colony that includes humans on an alien planet, uh, while Voyager discovers a Borg cube dead in space. Caught between warring factions, Kaplan is killed and Chakotay fatally injured. The colonists, all ex-Borg, can save Chakotay's life, but at a cost of his becoming a part of their newly formed cooperative. Well, I found this a fascinating episode that raised all sorts of issues. I mean, firstly, it's, it was my introduction to the Borg, which you pair keep making these dreadful noises about, so I've got to, <laughs> to see what they look like at least. I don't know. I learnt a lot about them. Um, but the big thing for me was looking at what the issues of free will and the issues of cooperation and placing the community good over the good of the individual. And there was lots of issues like that that I thought were well worth exploring from this episode. Yeah, I, I mean, it's one of those episodes that I just really enjoy watching and uh, I think it had a, a, a much higher IMDb rating than some of the ones that uh, have preceded it and come after it. Um, and, uh, yeah, I... I I, the Borg are always fun, and one of the things that Voyager does is try and explore different aspects of the Borg, and, and this uh, certainly is exploring one aspect of, of that, and in particular that idea of could uh, the ability to share your mind while not all having the same mind um, actually be a, a really profitable and good thing that would... Um, create peace and harmony and uh, no doubt we'll have interesting conversations about that shortly i think it's um it's always a, a trip for nostalgia for this one it's 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 when you've got this uh this this uh adversary that is is notorious is is and infamous first introduced to us by q in the episode q who in um next generation the borg have appeared all over the place uh in in movies in each episode and um and so it's fabulous. It, it feels like we're getting the band back together when the Borg turn up, um, which I have to say is really good, especially this week, considering ABBA is getting back together and are going to start touring. So, so there's another version of the Borg right there. You were saying ABBA is like the Borg, really? <laughs> I, I'm. It's a, it's a uh, an in joke from one of the movies. Borg sounds Swedish. The movie First Contact. Um, the Borg are in that movie, and the. Uh, the the twenty first century individual um, hears their name the Borg and thinks oh that sounds Swedish is it Abba I was just going to say I did find it interesting that they're obviously um, not like a creature I've met on Star Trek before in that they're obviously part machine they're part organic 
and they can be dead than not dead because they can be reanimated. And I found that fascinating. And and at the end, when Chakotay is about to blow them up, um, they're clearly a well-oiled machine when it comes to working together and that capacity for destruction. But I'm not sure I learnt why they do what they do or exactly how they work. But anyway, it was an interesting introduction. They're, they're less interested in destruction and more interested in assimilation, which I think is a really fascinating word to explore. They, they, they actually uh, encounter species, take what they need from them, um, and, um, and, and, and then discard the rest. Interestingly for us, um, when they, I was reading, doing some reading uh, around the Borg earlier, when they encountered the Kazon, they actually couldn't find anything worth assimilating and discarded the whole lot. So, um, so, so the Borg at least have some good taste as well. So, Well, they've obviously got intelligence. I can understand why they would find the Kazon fairly useless to their purposes. But it, it's really interesting that you can take any other species as a species yourself and assimilate it into your um, cluster or community or hive or whatever you want to call it um, and make them like yourself where they clearly do retain from what um, um, I can't think of a name uh, the female Chakotay meets um, you can still retain part of your mind because when the Borg left this community alone they went back to their individual histories and person and thinking um, even though they knew they'd be part of that cooperative, they would separate it from it, though there was some lasting effects. Obviously, they still had that telepathic ability and that ability to talk all at once and think all at once in the same way. Mm. Um, so they got quite assimilated. They are, but they aren't. Obviously, something remains of that individual um, entity when it, the Borg take them over. Yep. It's a real shame, yeah, actually. That, we're going to see that. Yeah, I was going to say it's a real shame, actually, they didn't continue this story. It would have been fascinating to see how the blonde Dr. Riley Fraser, um, who, uh, who was making a journey back to humanity from being assimilated to the Borg, um, might have actually developed into a character who could have even been part of the crew and maybe a, a love interest for Chakotay. But we'll, alas, we'll never see such a, a redemption narrative or, or redemption arc taking place in the future. That's a shame. <laughs> He's being ironical there. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it is interesting, uh, as you say, Elizabeth, that, that clearly, uh, although when they're part of the, the, the Borg collective, their individuality is, is totally erased, uh, that, that something is still there that is able to, to be brought back uh, when, they're, when they're released from that. And, and we do see that, of course, later uh, in Voyager as well. Um, but I mean, it, it, it is, it, it's interesting, isn't it? That whole collective and, uh, you know, particularly the, the, uh, the, the colonists, the, the good ones feeling like the only way to overcome the, the built-in antagonism and racism and, and violence that's happening is to actually join this, uh, hive mind in a sense, uh, that, that will enable people to, to get over that. And it did make me kind of think about, um, you know, some uh, Christian conceptions of heaven. Uh, and, and I've been in conversations where people have uh, discussed, uh, you know, the, the noetic effects of evil, the idea that evil actually 
changes our thinking, warps our thinking and, and makes us, as Paul says, unable to see except uh, through a glass darkly. Um, and that's at the root of a lot of our bad decisions as humans. And if, uh, you know, in heaven, whatever that is, that um, effect could be taken away and we would just see things truly as they are, um, you know, the question is, would anyone then choose evil if they're actually able to see love and see God and, and, uh, and other human beings perfectly and without that sort of cloudiness? That's a good question, I think. Um, uh, yeah. The whole idea of having a collective mind to actually bring peace and the idea that the individual is suppressed for the greater good or the greater evil, if we're talking about the Borg. Um, it's an interesting one, I think. And, and I, I guess for me, that's one of the big questions. And it might, and as you say, Lindsay, if you have that kind of feeling where everyone sees what you, what everyone else sees and that contamination, if you like, is removed, would it change the way we act and behave? I mean, I would say it would have to. But obviously when everyone who's been assimilated by the Borg is part of the Borg and seeing it that way, that's not seeing that. I mean, they're on the other side of that glass, aren't they? Where they see everything as something to be resourced or consumed or destroyed from what I can gather. Yeah, it's in yeah, interesting point. that we jump to this this point of evil. I mean, I guess the the reason why we would consider the Borg's actions to be to be evil um, or negative um, is this lack of consent that the Borg just take and 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 assimilate. Um, but um, I guess that's coming from a position where they know the best way to to organize the universe, um, and so they're they're proceeding in that best way, um, regardless of of the consent of what they might consider to be lesser lesser beings. So I mean, it's it 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 certainly is evil, but it's actually quite different to 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 other. Um, hybrid robotic collectives like the Daleks or the Cybermen, you know, where we actually, you know, very clearly see them as as being as being um, maniacal megalomaniac. There's there's no sense of that. I, I don't feel that sense of megalomania. There's just a cold. This is the way that it is. This is what we do. Um, you are irrelevant kind of position for the Borg, which makes them, I think, even more terrifying than these other emotional. Um, 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 hive constructs well their decisions aren't emotional really are they their decision about what is best for the hive and best for the borg mm. and as you say everything else is irrelevant to that mm. it's almost amoral yes and, and and i mean i think to pick up your point this is the same conversation we were having with lon suda wasn't it about the the fact that someone who who kills like without the passion or rage or whatever is is even more scary than someone you know who flies off the handle and in a rage uh, kills someone else. You know that that kind of uh, amoral, uh, not that we would see it as being amoral, but that person who has no affect, no emotional connection with what they do, uh, and and the Borg, uh, in their Borg form, are are exactly that. You know, and, and they just march around having. Uh, seemingly no feelings, no individuality, and no 
personal technological distinctiveness because it's all been assimilated. Well, I wonder what the Borg's reason for being is. Because um, most human and humanoid species in, in Star Trek have a reason to be. Um, you want a career, you want to fall in love, you want to have children, you want to be the best astronomer, you want to be whatever it is, um, you want to be helping others or whatever it is. There's reasons to be. I haven't been able to work out from what I've seen what the Borg's reason to be other than just to be, if you get what I'm saying. But it isn't um, even more fundamental than, you know, a career or love or whatever isn't survival, the fundamental instinct even for humans. And, and I guess in, in the Borg, that's just survival writ large with the, with the, you know, ultimate logic that the best way to survive is to be everything. But what are they surviving for? That's, my, uh, that's the question I'm asking. What are they surviving for? Is it just... You survive to survive. That seems very limited. And perhaps, perhaps once upon a time, there was a a, a driving force for the collective. There was a something to survive, something to 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 do to exist. But but like the ship of Theseus, they've just replaced component parts after component parts over over years and and centuries. The the background on the Borg suggests that the, the the Borg came into being somewhere around the 1400s, given our our historical understanding, looking at at at, at stories that have been released, um, and and so that means that out there now the Borg have been going for nearly 600 years, uh, assimilating and growing and and participating according to the documentary evidence that I've read uh, in relation to um, uh, this understanding of the universe. Um, that 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 um, that over time the Borg may no longer have retained um, the original sense of purpose, just like uh, the modern day church um, that that continues to uh, assimilate <laughs> and replace its component parts without really understanding what its mission might be. Well, I I think that parts of the modern day church should be like that Borg cube and just blown up, um, and that would be a very good thing. It would purge us of stuff that we don't need, and um, would probably set us on a track for something different and something new. So then the question would be, Elizabeth, is the uh, ex Borg colony, um, you know, what, what we're left with? Is, is that the model for the church that that we should uh, be like them? That's a really good question, and I've really struggled with this group because I don't know they're inherently evil, but I thought Chakotay hit the nail on the head when he said now they have such power, Yes, it will be interesting to see what they actually do with it because yes. there will be times the choice between good and evil will confront them and what they go with and how they go about it would be, I think, most interesting, and therein will lie their dilemma. Um and, of course, they overcome Chakotay's free will to do something, and it, it is for the greater good, and I don't doubt that because he, it's to blow up that cube and get rid of all those borgs so they can't go around harming anyone again. So it is about the greater good, but there's this cost to this individual. So weighing up the two things I thought was a really interesting dilemma that this episode was actually putting before us. So, Yeah. I felt though that he'd overstated a little bit. There's this this interesting um, fear or phobia that we, I think, as human beings, have of of 
of psychic connection of of being able to to connect directly and then download thoughts um one from the other i mean we don't have that same fear of say the betazoids uh, or, or even the vulcans who are actually mildly telepathic uh, later on in the Voyager series, we'll see that there are races that are absolutely terrified of of telepathic species that have the capacity to directly link with each other and connect with each other. Um, it, it seems to me, as uh, from a personal perspective, both my 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 one of my greatest de- desires to be have have that level of connection with people, uh, and yet also my greatest of fears to be known so entirely and completely um, that as a human being, we value our individuality and our level of connection to each other with equal passion, which is really fascinating. Is it about individually so much as is it about privacy? I like to think my thoughts are my thoughts and I can think things and I can process things without someone eavesdropping on that. Mm where they might get the wrong impression about what I'm processing or in a fit of pique, I might think of our um, outgoing prime minister in certain ways, shall we say, for example, that I may <laughs> not say aloud. I don't necessarily want someone eavesdropping on those thoughts, which is just my way of getting rid of some pent up tension or some way of processing what I understand to have happened. So for me, it's intruding into a really private inner sanctum where I can do things without fear of being judged or punished or whatever for those thoughts. Absolutely, but but yet, how great is it when someone gets you? When someone someone yeah. is on your we use these words like wavelength. wavelength when somebody is yeah. with you, when somebody understands what it is that you're thinking or feeling or want to say before you even say it, to be able to act in unis, unity and unison with other people in in a way like that's that's a are getting a tingle just thinking about it. So I hold that fear, that fear of being known or, or seen, um, um, and and yet there's this also drive to be seen, to be known, that that actually exists in equal portions for the human being. And and I think that the um the the critical um issue there, at least uh, as I look at it, is uh, exactly why um the the um cooperative actions are so problematic. It's, it's the issue of consent, mm. that yeah. when I, for instance, engage in uh, intimacy with my life partner, I'm choosing who I want to expose myself to, and even in that relationship, I choose the level to which I expose myself. Uh, and it is great when you're able to do a bit of that and the person does get you and so you expose a bit more and, and, and you do grow in that uh, sense of knowing and being known. But, but it's always under your control. It's, it's never um, someone flicks the switch and, and now Suzanne knows everything about me and every thought I've ever had and whatever. It, it's always a sense of I choose to share um, and I choose to receive what's shared back. I think that's really important because that was the sticking point for me. Yes, blowing up the Borg cube is presumably for the greater good of not just that cooperative but for everyone because no one wants a Borg ship bearing down on them. But it completely controlled Chakotay to achieve those ends. Um, Mm. Would it not have been better if they actually said to Chakotay, this is what's happening, we'll guide you, you flick this switch and push this button and then boom, that's what's going to happen. And also there was the question, had not the Starfleet people 
teleported out of there when they did, was Ch- Chakotay going to be a sacrificial lamb when he he flicked the switch? Was he going to be blown up too and sacrificed? Because that is a question that is not really answered, even though they're very apologetic to Janeway afterwards. How did they know that that crew would be there to save Chakotay at that very moment when everything went boom? But yeah, I think then when you're a collective, though, your, your thoughts change a little bit that, that culturally, you know, the loss of one for the saving of the whole is 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 like the loss of a finger to save the whole body. So so in some ways, Chakotay's death would have been culturally more like an amputation um, or the removal of, of, a, of, a, of a part that would be missed, but would save the whole. So it, so the value of life as individuality decreases, seems to decrease as well, which is really fascinating. Then we come back to Lindsay's consent mm. at that point. I mean, I have to say in terms of uh, the specifics of Chakotay, um, while I think consent is, is the primary issue, there is, for me at least, just a hint that he kind of went along with it. You know, in his final conversation with, uh, Janeway, where he talks about still being guilty. Um, you know, he says, oh, I'm guilty because I fixed up their radio transmitter and that allows them to do it. But I wonder if it's not. <laughs> Sorry, that was my phone. <laughs> I thought it was Doctor Who arriving in the middle of our podcast. In the middle of our podcast, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I, I wonder whether some of that guilt that Chicote feels is actually because there was a part of him that was quite happy to go along with with what the uh, cooperative were asking. Um, And and I do want to say, I think, Elizabeth, that your your portrayal of the cooperative as doing something for the common good in in blowing up the the, uh, Borg uh, cube, while that's certainly true, I don't think that was their motivation. I think what the episode says was their motivation was that they wanted that um, particular subsystem of the cube to be uh, uh, turned on in order to enable their cooperative uh, to span all the all the human being or all the beings there, and, and that was their primary motivation. Was I guess the selfish one of of wanting to get what they wanted, which in the case of the the few in the bunker was going to also saved their lives because otherwise they would have been overrun by whoever it was that was bursting in. Yeah. Um, and and then the the blowing up the cube was like, um, you know, an added extra uh, that they discovered they could do that. Um, and so they went ahead and did that. That's good for everyone, sure. But I think their primary motivation was their own self-preservation and the creation of this new, larger uh, cooperative on the planet. Well, that could well be true. Um, it's still a motivation, though, that's putting community first, even if sure. we see it in a slightly warped way. Um, and it's they're seeing it as for the common good, that if everyone is on the same wavelength, as Will said, it, it's for the common good. And they're yep. um, not the, the fighting will stop and they'll get on and they can make the place flourish and be productive, presumably. They also did need to take out the Borg cube, <clears throat> though, because an active Borg cube in close proximity would have put them in danger of reassimilation. That um, yeah. that the Borg would have would have. And so, for the same reason, Voyager needed to get rid of the cube. Um, they also needed to tidy up their sector of space and make sure that they couldn't be 
reassimilated. We we know from further from from past episodes that that the the once a Borg gets reactivated, they send out a a signal to to try and find the collective, like my Wi-Fi does. And and as soon as they find it, they summon the rest of the collective to come and actually start to salvage whatever parts need to be salvaged. So. Um, just one Borg. That's why in the sick bay, when the one Borg suddenly activated and he sat up like a zombie, everybody became terrified because Starfleet um, reports had actually said that just one Borg is actually enough to be able to not only assimilate an entire group of people and start the collective again, but also make a connection to the full collective, bringing the full force of the Borg into a particular part of space. So um, I, I think they had they they, they certainly needed to destroy that cube um, for that reason. Um, they needed it switched on first and then cube destroyed second so that they actually got what they wanted and the clear clear, clear space as well. So does that mean that the Borg are going to now relentlessly track down Voyager because that Borg was activated in sickbay? Well, they didn't tell us what they did. What did they do with that Borg in sickbay? Did they chuck him off or I don't know what they – I'm assuming they must have got rid of him. Um, yeah. because to carry him around would be dangerous. Um, and once the signal's gone, if they move position, of course, that makes it um, – but but the reality is we're now moving into Borg space, the space that um, that that is most dangerous. Um, um, I, I wanted to pick up on what Lindsay said before, though, about Chakotay's guilt. Um, it's that old uh, you can't be hypnotised unless you want to kind of yes. thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and I, I'm, I'm still not sh- – you know, I think that's – that's potentially because when we're talking about hypnosis, we're dealing with smoke and mirrors and uh, and and uh, illusion and and that kind of stuff. We're creating an environment in which person is, a person is susceptible to suggestion, um, whereas telepathy is something more invasive, something more significant than that. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I I I I think he probably did want to help them. Um, and, um, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, I, 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 I think he would have been forced to help them no matter what anyway, because they, they, they had that power to be able to, to, to motivate him in that way. I think the thing for me, Lindsay, that made it not all of Chakotay's willingness was the fact he shot Balana. I can't imagine Chakotay using yeah. any kind of weapon on Balana in his right mind. Well, I'm surprised no, no. though. That, Harry that, Kim that. shoots Chakotay. Did you see that? Go yes, Harry! Yes. Boom, boom. Oh. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if Harry Kim feels guilty about that. Um, we'll probably never know because Sarstrek will probably act as if it never happened. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. Well, I mean, Chakotay did uh, shoot Tuvok first, so that's you know. Right. Balana and Tuvok. Yeah, that's right. And to me, that's not Chakotay. That is not no, the essence no. of Chakotay in any size, yeah. way, shape, or form. Even if yeah. he did punch someone earlier in an episode. And and I think that that's what makes it so insidious. Then uh, and and coming back to the cooperative, uh, you know, and and uh, is it in fact the common good that they they all understand each other and and so there's no war and whatever. Well, maybe, but the other thing to say is if they have anyone who, you know, gets out of line, they can just entirely override their, their personality and their desires uh, to enforce the peace. Uh, and, you know, so that, that, that becomes a very uh, slippery sort of slope. And uh, I, you, you, qu- you quoted the thing that Kote said at the end, Elizabeth, and that was one of my uh, quote of the weeks too. 
um, about how long will the ideals last yeah. in the face of that kind of power. And it's interesting, I, I immediately thought uh, here in Australia we've just had a, an election and, uh, and uh, got uh, a new government voted in and uh, the new prime minister has uh, said a few times, uh, you know, that he wants to change the way politics is done and he wants people to be more respectful and, and stuff like that. Uh, and you think, you know, well, how long will those ideals last uh, in, the, in the face of having all the power? It's one thing when you're in opposition uh, to have these high ideals, will they be able to, to hold on to them when they're in power? Um, I think that the fact that he's not going to have that power in the Senate will keep that right in check, Lindsay. And that's why we have an upper house. And for this, we say amen, thanks to God, because I feel that any government with unbridled power, the worst governments we've seen generally have power in the lower and the upper house and they can push through whatever they like in the face of opposition research, scientific information and just do what they like. And we've seen them do that. So I'm happy about the result. I'm happy that they may just squeak a majority into the lower house just, but there's so many on the crossbench, they're actually going to have to negotiate. And in the Senate to get legislation through, they're certainly going to have to negotiate. So I'm very optimistic having to do that will keep that power in check. Mind you, having said that, Elizabeth, it's a recalcitrant Senate who won't pass the government's legislation that's stopping gun control in the US. I don't think we have Senates like the US has Senates because I think the US is a special kind of stupid, particularly when it comes to the (laughs) Republican Party. Some of the things I've heard come out of the mouth of those people just astonish, astound and just... I have no explanation or no words for some of it because it is just so ideologically repulsive. And Josh, um, one of our fans from the US who's living here in Geelong at the moment, um, Elizabeth is talking about them collectively, not individually, um, <laughs> that there are certainly um, some very intellectual individuals in, in in the US and from the US, but, but collectively, yes, uh, they are making some rather ridiculous decisions. Um, oh, and, and, it's, just some, mm, it's awful. Some mm. of those Republican senators and what they're saying, I'm just it just staggers me at the lack of morality, the lack of regard for facts and history and reasonable information, the will to impose your ideals and values on other people by force. That's just they may as well join the Borg right now. Well, I was going to say though that that's what what's beautiful about the Borg is that that individual imposition doesn't doesn't exist that that there is a, a, a true collective that there is a uh, and and it, I, I don't ask me how to explain it what it looks like because my humanity actually rebels against it conti- continuously but but there's no agenda there's no individual idea there's there's just the, the the we are the borg um and and they they live if you want to know what their purpose is they live to uh, assimilate and improve by assimilation uh, just while we're talking about uh, assimilation, um, the, the other thing that struck me as I was listening to this episode and uh, talk of assimilation was that that is exactly the terminology which uh, has been used in the past in describing uh, multiculturalism and uh, mm. people of different, different uh, ethnic and cultural origins who come to Australia. And... Uh, 
I, I think that that's uh, something worth uh, thinking about. That that idea that you know uh, we want everyone to assimilate with Australian society, to take on Australian values. You know that the worst thing you can do is to import your your fights from your country. Uh, you've got to lay it all down and become Australian. And and uh, uh, you know I think uh, more recently we've um, rebelled against that kind of idea. But I think it's still there in all in the minds of a lot of Australians. You know, um, sure we're happy for people to come here, but they've got to become like us. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I don't know what they whether people can really clearly articulate what that means, Lindsay. You know, does it mean bowing down before the Anzac election? Does it mean just speaking English everywhere? Does it mean saluting the flag? Does it mean having a barbecue on Australia Day? You know, I think it's very vague when you ask people to define what that is. Well, there is a covenant here with the Borg. Like when you think about it, if they when they arrive, they turn up, the first thing they say is resistance is futile. Um, we are the Borg. So that's introduction. That's lovely to be able to say this is who we are. Um, lower your shields <laughs> and surrender your ships. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. So there's an exchange. There's an, an acceptance that they will be taking on board biological and technological distinctiveness to be able to be a part of the collective as a whole. The Borg isn't moving in the way that assimilation might be used in that very nationalistic Australian kind of way to say, oh, you will become like us because there would be no purpose in actually gathering people and making them the same as what was there before. The Borg commit to, in their opening statement, to adding biological and technological distinctiveness to their own. They they commit to change, to evolution, to becoming more than the sum of their parts. The Borg are intercultural. That's correct, yeah. Yeah, but only if you do everything they want. I mean, the Borg aren't open to you actually going your own way if they're in. <laughs> well, Obviously, when they they front up, they're telling you this is what's going to happen. There's no discussion here. But 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 I guess that that alongside of that, that you become then an equal voice within the Borg to actually affect its distinctiveness. That you Don't become they have a queen. Uh, yes, they do have a queen. Yes, which I I actually think was a mistake in writing. I'm going on record. I know that some won't agree, but I, I, I actually think what they did was they took this marvellous collective of individuals interlinked and they couldn't handle it. And so they said, oh, we've got to have an individual that's running this. Uh, and, and that really that really annoyed me, I have to say. I, I was unhappy with that addition. I thought that was because it was a hive. Like every hive of insects like bees have to have a queen. Only from a so, human perspective. Like it's it no, comes no, back to no, individualism again. What why can't there be a collective that isn't run or ruled by an individual point? Because I'm what I'm saying, Will, is if they based it on a hive of bees and the hive of bees has to have a queen. So I'm assuming that's why the writers wrote one in for the Borg if they based it on that model. Mm. That's yeah, I, I mean, I think it was just dramatic effect. I mean, it's the same uh, in a sense as uh, Locutus of Borg. I mean, why should Picard, uh, you know, be singled out as a, an individual within the Borg collective, um, you know, to be an ambassador or whatever? Why do they need that? And I think the answer is the Borg don't need it. Uh, television needs it because, yes. you know, uh, it would be no fun at all if, if Picard was just one of the drones along with everyone else and and uh, had had no particular role. So they, they make him look at the board. 
And in the same way, you know, in first contact or whatever, if you're going to have this, um, you know, real uh, gutsy emotional you know, pressure point, you have to have a person. You can't have that with with a, a hive. Yeah. We, uh, and even the term drones is modelled on bees, is it not? Yeah, yeah. So we're going to meet the Queen soon um, in Voyager, which will be good. She's, she's in the episodes as well as the movies. Um, and when I first watched this, I kind of had the impression, my understanding was that that as an interface, as a, an efficient interface with individuals, it was best to actually create an individual to interface. So it was, there's something incarnational about this, that to say like if the Borg are actually <laughs> um, so foreign and alien to the individual understanding that they they needed to 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 transcend from their their position to create an incarnation of themselves that would actually be able to communicate freely um and so locutus and the queen are both examples of of the of the attempt by the borg to actually deal with something they can't assimilate by their usual means i do say well nicholas you're becoming an apologist for the borg shields and surrender your ships. We will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Your culture will adapt to service us. Resistance is futile. I, I am, aren't I? <laughs> you are. Maybe I've been Not assimilated. I've lowered my shields and surrendered my ships and I'm allowing my biological and technological distinctiveness to be added to their own. <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> Uh, just on another uh, issue, um, one of the things that I found really fascinating watching this was uh, Chakotay's response to what, what was the lady's name? Sorry, I can't remember. Uh, Riley. Riley. Chakotay's response to Riley when she says, haven't you thought of settling down on a nice M-class planet? Because they've been confronted with this a number of times mm. in the past. And in the past, the response has been, a very visceral no, we want to get home. Earth is our home, uh, and, and that's why we're traveling uh, and not settling down. But here, Chakotay's reasons are quite different. He says, we'd be giving up the opportunity for exploration. And in any case, we've made a nice uh, life for ourselves on Voyager. So it, it's quite a shift that, in a sense, Voyager has become home and the mission of exploration has become. Uh, the purpose uh, in in a way that doesn't seem to reflect the kind of very uh, violently emotive response of wanting to get back to Earth. And I was a bit surprised when he actually said that. I, I thought he'd say what had been said in earlier seasons, you know, people want to go home, they want to see their family again, they don't want to be cast adrift. But he's matter of fact, it'll take us 73 years and in the meantime, look at the data we can collect. Yeah, um, yeah. I was a bit surprised by that, and I thought, who's going to be running this ship in seventy three years? It's not going to be <laughs> you, matey. Um, there might be some very long lived species on there. I think Vulcans are quite long lived. Who knows? Um, our young friend who had the blood fever last week perhaps can still be young mm. enough to be running the running the joint. But um, I thought it was an interesting response as well. I, I don't buy this whole getting home thing anymore. I've been I've been watching quite a bit of Star Trek recently, just to uh, you know to get my head around some of the meta narratives. These people they don't go home ever. Like you know, I mean, in in seven years of Next Generation, I think they go to Earth three times. Um, you know, like uh, I I don't think 
I, I ever saw um, Deanna Troy go back to 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 Beta Z Beta. Um, at yeah. any point. And, and so th- there is this sense in which I mean, I think there's some of our anachronistic human planet-centered understanding that 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 unless we're standing on on soil we're not actually at home that that the reality is that in the future living on space stations asteroids starships traveling from one place to the other may actually feel as much like home with quarters and beds and curtains and appliances um when families and that was one of the appeals of the galaxy class starship was that whole families could actually stay together while they actually undertook their space exploration um this idea that a home can only be found on a planet is one that i'd i'd want to question well it's not one i'm going to question i'm keeping my feet firmly planted on terra firma (laughs) i'm afraid because i'd just be paranoid that with the way things are built on this planet, you'd go into space and something would fail. You know, the oxygen generator would fail or the, the power would fail or there'd be a leak of something. You know, I, that would really concern me. I don't think I could do it. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a really interesting uh, comment, Will. I think as I think about it in my head, that what would I feel is home? The issue for me with being on Voyager or, or even on Enterprise for that matter, is that you're not in control of where you can go or who you can see, except to a very limited extent. So, you know, if I'm on Voyager, like, you know, there's 70 people or whatever it is, if I'm on the Enterprise, well, there may be hundreds, but but I'm still limited. And I can't say I'm going to go for a holiday, you know, down to the South Coast, or I'm going to uh, go and visit Rome or something like that. But Lindsay, now, Lindsay, I've had that experience for the last two years in my home. You know, yes, so yes. so there's a sense in which it's got very little to do with whether I'm on the opposite side of the galaxy or whether or not I'm actually right where I am. Um, I, I think there's something something significantly more to this sense of collective home um, than um, than we've given credit to. Yeah, no, I guess what I'm saying is I'm in control. So I can imagine being like in, in I, I can imagine more the lost in space type of thing where I'm in a, a family spacecraft and, and if I wasn't shipwrecked marooned somewhere but I had the ability to go where I wanted and, and my family to go where I wanted. I think the thing about being on Voyager or Enterprise is you are locked into that collective, you know, so it does have that sort of, militaristic sort of sense of yeah. you are part of the machine and you go where the machine uh, wants and you have a bit of spare time yourself, but that's it, uh, as opposed to the, the much broader freedom that I have uh, as an individual living on Earth. So I'd have no problem with a huge space station that had lots of different, you know, climates and people and places and shops and whatever, uh, imagining that to be a home-like place. But I think a travelling starship is not quite there for me. And I think that we don't have the technology for either and we're not going to have it for probably (laughs) centuries. So, you know, I'm not going to get worked up about it because the current space station we do have is so far from the Star Trek sci-fi as you can get, really. It's a lot more primitive and it's it's got a lot more issues than anything on Star Trek I've ever seen. The question still remains for me in a different form, though, in that, you know, I've been a bit of a traveller. I've been working for the church for the last 25 years. 
Um, I've lived in 18 different houses in the last 25 years. I've been in three different states, in five different presbyteries. Um, and and sometimes I hear people talk about their home church, and and I kind of go, whoa, where is my my home church? Is it is it the church I grew up in? Well, I was a part of my my you know my family church from the age of twelve to the age of eighteen, so that's six years. But I was in Tasmania for eight years. Um, you know, like is it length of time? Is it depth of relationship? Um, for some people, it's really easy. They say, oh, I, I was born in this church. I live in this church. I'll die in this church. So they know what it is. But but I, I actually have no concept of a home home church to be a part of, a community that I would say I'm, I would return to. Now, I think that's for ministers. I think it's different, Will, because we do move around. I mean, if you ask me my home church, I'd probably say my childhood church is. And that's the church I grew up in. Mm. Um, I don't know. I think of it as my home church now, particularly because it's still Presbyterian. I'm never going back to the Presbyterians. Um, But, you know, my home church is where I happen to be in placement at the moment. So Mm. my home church is Tuggeranong. So when I retire, I guess my home church will change again. It'll be whatever I'm attending at that time. Mm. So I think for ministers, it's more fluid because we do move around and you put down a certain amount of roots, they mightn't go deep into the ground, but they're deep enough. And you make friends in that area and you minister to those people. And then when time comes to move on, you not have this pathological uh, and irrational fear of change. We move on and we do it again. And so in reference to this episode, then we're individuals who are actually moving through collectives on a regular basis. Like there is this sense in which, and those collectives do attempt to assimilate us and we attempt to add our technological and biological distinctiveness to to them as we pass through them. There's this really interesting partnership dance between the the itinerantness of ministers and the and the, the collectiveness of congregations that that I don't think has been addressed. No, I don't think it has. That's a really interesting way you're putting it there, Will, and I think it's true. I think that we do move through collectives that do mostly function with one mind, not always, but you know, they mostly have agreement about who they are and what they're doing. And we do move through them and we're among them, but we don't become one of them. Because you know, at some point you're going to move. But I, I wonder. I mean, you're you're saying, Elizabeth, that this is somehow unique to ministers. But there are lots of people who, because of the nature of their job, uh, are itinerant in the same way, and who go into a, a church community knowing that that it won't be forever, and that they will probably move on in a few years. Um, and and I do wonder, you know. The, the nature of, of community and, and how do you build community for a society where perhaps there are an increasing number of people for whom that's the case, much more so than that I, I grew up here, I've lived here all my life. I'm not saying it's unique to ministers, Lindsay. I never said that. What I'm saying is that is the experience of ministers, mm. and it is. Yeah. It's sure. not unique to them. And here in Canberra, when I was at Canberra City, it's a very itinerant congregation. It has probably, I don't mm. know, 40 to 50 people that go there all the time, but it's on the doorstep of the ANU. So there's this constant stream of international students in particular mm. that come through it. And one of the challenges we had there was this, what you just said. How do you actually form community and minister to 
an itinerant community that will probably be changing over every year or two. Mm. Yeah, I found schools ministry the same, chaplaincy ministry in schools where you've actually got a set either 1 to 12 or 1 to 6 depending on the size of the school where you know that you've got X number of years before these people are going to no longer be a part of the community. And in many ways, youth ministry um, operates in a very similar kind of way. There, there's there's no way to guarantee that we will actually keep our young people, I, I hate using those words, but but keep the young people we're ministering to. And in fact, we we if we do keep them, then perhaps we deform them. They need to be released to actually travel out into the world and take their technological and biological distinctiveness and 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 connect into other collectives. Yeah, and I think we do a disservice to people. I mean, I think community is important, and I think in our society, in Western society particularly, we've put individual rights over communal ones, which I don't think is a good thing. And we do kind of fluctuate between the two because lockdowns were obviously for the benefit of the whole community. Where now we see COVID numbers are rising and the neoliberal god of economics has decreed we can't even have a mask mandate now. It's much better for older people and vulnerable people to die than it is to even think of wearing a piece of cloth on our face. And that annoys me because we've swung to the opposite end of the pendulum where we're saying we're not going to implement anything for the mm. common good. I think the the thing that um, I, I think about when in this conversation is the, the ways in which we now have the capacity to have different types of communities that, yeah. you know, I mean, I think about us as a community. I think about, you know, that my role-playing groups as communities and and they're not particularly limited by uh, where I am geographically and if I move I could still, you know, continue to be part of this podcast crew or part of my D&D uh, online group or whatever it might be. Um, and, and I think we've, we've, we've always had the recognition that community doesn't have to just be like the, the little group that you meet, you know. So I think of people who form a very close community with some of the people they went to school with and that they then regularly keep up with for uh, years and years and years, uh, you know, getting together when they can but, but staying in contact in other ways. So I think that that broadening of our sense of how you can find community is really helpful. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And we do form different communities depending on our interests and our needs and um, what our history or background might be in certain areas, like our family can be a community, you know, because you've been with them. And then, of course, you might have friends from years ago and then you have gaming people who are your community or archery people or running people or whatever it is. Yeah, I think that's that's right. And I think that actually adds meaning to life and it also teaches us to be human because you're interacting with people and there's always got to be give and take and the individual is never really in control. And should they take control of one of those communities, it rarely works. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, there were... um. There were a couple of uh, plot holes and issues with this particular episode I just wanted to cover. Uh, no. Yes. No, no, Dr. No. <laughs> Dr. Riley um, makes a point of saying that she was assimilated at Wolf 359, which is clearly yes. um, mythos-building fan service, makes triggers all of the beginning of uh, Deep Space Nine for us and, and, and makes us remember that Cisco's great loss in that place and and Locutus of Borg and suddenly Captain Riker. So all of those things come 
rushing to the floor for the fans. Sorry, Elizabeth, um, as as that as as she makes that statement. But um, the the sphere that was headed towards Earth that was intercepted by the Federation fleet at Wolf three five nine was destroyed at. Um, on its way to Earth completely. So not one of the assimilated individuals that was picked up at Wolf 359 could possibly be part of the collective today. So I, 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 have, I have to say I'm sorry, Dr. Riley, I don't believe your story. She's lied again. She's lied before. This, this is just a further, <laughs> a further roost. She must have been picked up some other way. I don't – no, I'm going to stick up for Dr. Riley and say the writers just can't get it right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that the cube, you know, stopped off and dropped off, you know, the newly newly assimilated people to, to do some, uh, you know, rookie training or something. That's a good idea. They whisked them away before they were destroyed. Well, it was it was wonderful to actually have that that connection, and they and they do do better in the future. They they actually are, are careful not to actually ascribe any further uh, assimilations to the Wolf Three Five Nine event. Um, but you know, if you know, it's it's one of those uh, uh, Jalad and Tanagra um, moments. If you if you're talking to Star Trek fans and you say Locutus at Wolf Three Five Nine, people go. <laughs> oh yes! Oh gee, I remember that moment. So um, it's amazing how much meaning and and common experience, collective consciousness, can actually come out of our our love of science fiction and our immersion in this universe. Well, I'm not part of that collective consciousness. I'm sorry, I have no idea what you're talking about. But you are gradually being assimilated. Yeah, you are. You, I mean, am. you are gradually being assimilated. Yeah, because I'm learning much more. Because if I had have said Paris and Kim at the shoot, then you would suddenly go, "Oh, I remember that episode where they actually got stuck in that space, and that was horrible and dreadful, and I'm glad they got out alive." So. Like there, there are these kind of. Oh, what about uh, um, Janeway and Chakotay and the monkey? Um, suddenly, <laughs> we, we, we've got we've got all of these different stories uh, that actually um, um, come to mind with just a small small snippet of imagery. Janeway and Paris together. Say oh no, no more. not the catfish. <laughs> like there that we go. See, into my brain. Say no more. That's right. <laughs> So did either of you have a quote of the week this week? Mine mine was uh, from the doctor, uh, you know, always a reliable source of quotes of the week. I must say there's nothing like the vacuum of space for preserving a handsome corpse. Yes, yes, that was very good. Um yeah, look, I, I um I think there was so much going on in this one. I it was less of a quote, more of a I, I did enjoy watching for some reason, I don't know why, but I enjoyed watching Harry Kim uh stun Chakotay. I thought that was good. <laughs> um, maybe maybe that's why he never got promoted beyond Ensign. Um Chakotay just remembered that moment. <laughs> I feel so sorry for Harry. I, I mean, that was a running joke when I first started with you two talking about Harry Kim not being promoted. But here he is apparently part of the senior crew because he's in on briefings and he's up there on the bridge and that. And he does never – he gets commended from time to time for his actions. But I don't understand why he never gets promoted. I'm, I'm wondering about that now. I might give my quote of the week to Ensign Kaplan. The nebula's completely scrambling our navigational readings. I still can't get a fix on our position. Are you saying we're lost, Ensign? That depends what you mean by lost, sir. Lost, as in you still can't get a fix on our position. I'm sorry, sir. 
I have to say. Uh, isn't it amazing, actually, that we talked about how important every life is and yet Ensign Kaplan, you know, oh, well, that's just <laughs> that's another. Right. Uh, you just get rid of her. But uh, there was that exchange at the very beginning where Chakotay says, are you saying we're lost, Ensign? And Ensign Kaplan says, that depends on what you mean by lost, sir. Yeah, I thought that was a good quote. <laughs> yes, I, yes. I've noticed too, Ensigns are the most dispensable crew. Yes. They're yep. obviously high enough to make an impact when they're dispensed with, but they're low enough not to be missed when they're dispensed with. So I think in the last few seasons, how many Ensigns have we actually lost? Is she the third or the fourth? Uh, look, I'll, I'll, I'll try and do a breakdown for next week as to um, how many crew members we've lost. Crew losses, um, yeah. But uh, that's probably a good thing to to check in on. Um, but um, yeah, um, they seem very disposable. Yeah, and look, the running joke is that that if they're wearing um, uh, red uh, or mustard uh, in the new series, um, and they get a name and they have a line, and it's the beginning of the episode, you kind of go, you oh, know, they're going. That's the end of them. I, I was. I remember the first time I ever saw Ensign Vorek. I thought to myself, "Oh well, here we go." But you know, he's got yep. a he's got a purpose, so he's going to get to hang around for a while. Is that the? Is he the Vulcan one? He's the Vulcan. Yes, yeah, yep. yeah, yes. Well, I've wondered about that if they were going to dispose of him sometime. He's, you know, he's vulnerable, but being a Vulcan means he can do some interesting things. I guess in the future, he certainly can. He certainly can. Well, that kind of brings us towards the end of our time. Next week, we get to see some of the darker side of the Doctor. Um, no. Yes, no, yes No, I'm not having it. There so is no dark side to the Doctor. We're, we're looking forward to this idea that, that there is a light side and a dark side to all of us and uh, exploring our shadow self. So break out your Jungian... Um, <laughs> tomes and 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 other bits as we explore the shadow of ourselves next week in the episode darkling darkling excellent well that's uh all we've got today uh this collective is signing off uh we hope today we've been able to add your biological and technological distinctiveness to uh, our own uh, and we look forward to um, continuing on next week. And uh, until next week, I've been Will Nichols. I'm Lindsay Cullen. And I'm Elizabeth Ray. And resistance is futile. <laughs>